was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolish, foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. And so begins Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, where he, he, he illustrates and talks about two extremes. And that's what we have in our text for today from the gospel that John read for us. We see Peter at his best, and we see Peter at his worst. Except that later on, Peter gets worster. <laughs> worster. He gets worster. And so what we'll take a look today is Peter. We'll take a look at Peter at his best, and Peter at his worst. But to do that, we have to jump back 2,000 more years. Now, Peter and his nation, his people, have been waiting a long time for a certain person, the one they called Messiah. In fact, the primary purpose of the Old Testament is to describe this history, God's history of his people, him choosing a people and then choosing a family within that people, a line and lineage of King David. And he was going to use this people, this family, to save his people, and not just his people, but the entire world and all creation would be redeemed through one, promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And the people of Israel were waiting and waiting and waiting. And they were ready. They were anxious. We see literature outside the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that talks about a people waiting for the Messiah and wondering when Messiah would finally come. And so Jesus is with his disciples and he takes them away to a, a private place and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they give complimentary answers. You know, some say you're like Elijah. Some say you're like John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus narrows it down. All of history narrows it down to one single question. Who do you say that I am? Peter. Speaking on behalf of all the disciples, he struts forward. You can see him do it. Got this. You, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the one that's been promised, the one that we've been anxiously desiring for these thousands of years. You are the one, the Son of the living God. It's the best announcement of all history. And Peter gets the honor. There are a lot of great announcements, right? If you get to make it a big announcement, it's a huge honor, right? The person who starts the Indy 500 has a huge honor, you know? Gentlemen, and then Danica Patrick, and lady, start your engines, right? And then, just roar. The best announcement I can think of, though, is the announcement a father gets to make and he's in that labor and delivery room with his precious bride. 
and she gives them the most incredible gift and miraculous gift you can imagine. There's a baby, and the father gets to hold his baby and give the baby back to mom, and then, in a lot of cases, walks out to the waiting room where there's other family waiting and announce, it's a girl, it's a boy, and everyone celebrates and rejoices. What a great privilege to make that announcement. And Peter's announcement is bigger. It's bigger. And he gets the honor, and he gets the joy, and he gets the privilege. It's fantastic. It was the best of times. And then it was the worst of times. Because Jesus immediately begins to explain what his purpose is. That his purpose to save God's people, that his purpose to save all people, that his purpose to redeem creation is to die. It's to die a perfect and sinless death on a cross designed for criminals and to take away the sin of the world. And then Peter says those two words that should never go together. He says, never, Lord. Which is a really odd phrase. Never, Lord. Imagine. Imagine you're at a symposium where Bill Gates is talking about computer operating systems. And in the middle of Bill's talk, you say, actually, Bill, Windows doesn't actually work like that. Right? Or transport yourself back to 1930s, and Albert Einstein's giving a talk on the theory of relativity. And you're like, Al, you got it all wrong, buddy. I've got the right theory here, right? Peter says to the Lord, the Son of the living God, never, no, you're wrong. It is the worst of times. And so this morning we're going to take a look at just a couple lessons we can learn from this lesson here and from Peter. And the first lesson is this. Is that you are built on the rock. You're built on the rock. See, Jesus uses the confession of Peter to build his church. He certainly doesn't use Peter because as we learn in the Gospels, Peter's no one to build anything on. But Peter's confession absolutely is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You, Jesus, are the one who defeated death. You, Jesus, are the one who brings life. You, Jesus, are the one who brings forgiveness. That you, Jesus, are the one who brings hope and purpose and joy. And that when you make that confession, you walk in the authority of the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and the gates of hell will not stand because you walk in that confession of what Jesus Christ has done for you. That your identity is centered on the one who gave up everything because he loves you that much. That your purpose in life is given because Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, dies and rises for you. One, because you're worth it. Two, because you're loved. Three, because you're his. And four, because you have life now and forever. Of whom shall you be afraid? What can take away your joy and your life 
and your purpose? No one. And that when you stand on that confession of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, has done for you, that when you walk into a room, Satan flees. When you walk in that authority. When you walk into a room, evil diminishes. That when you walk into a room, grace abounds and love increases. Not because of who you are and not because of who Peter is, but because of who your God is and what Jesus Christ has done for you. And all of our lives is just growing in that knowledge and that certainty and that, if I may say so, that authority of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And so I'm going to take a little side note here. This is what the church is to be all about. This is what you, as God's people, are to be all about. And if you're here and you're here investigating and you're just checking out who Jesus is, we are so glad that you're here and you're like, well, I'm just checking things out. I don't know what you're talking about. It's okay. We're so glad you're here. And our prayer is that as you become more aware of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done for you, that you'll be like, okay, I'm going to walk in that authority too. The authority of one who's been forgiven and loved and has a hope and a future. But you, church, you who stand on the authority, on the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for for thousands of years, that he's died and rose for you to give you life and hope now and forever, freely, absolutely freely by his grace. We need you. We need you. I hear so many times, I can worship God alone, I can worship God on the mountain, I can worship God in nature, taking my hike, you know? And the thing is, it's absolutely true. You don't know to, you don't have to go to church to be saved. You don't have to go to church to be loved by Jesus. You don't have to go to church to be forgiven. You don't have to go to church to be uh, know his hope and his joy and his purpose. You don't have to. You don't. But God calls us together. And all the Christian churches up and down this valley and across this nation, across this world. It says, I have a mission for you. And it's a mission that's so big, you can't possibly do it alone. You can't possibly do it by yourself. You can't possibly do it uh, up on the mountain by yourself or taking a hike or in a private devotion. He calls us together and says, I have a mission for you. And that is to live under his grace. To live in his authority. That's the mission, church. That's why God calls us together. That's why it's so glad to have all of you here together today from all parts of the nation. We had our uh, church council meet, did some visioning exercises. Dustin led us on that. It's a great time. A vision of being church outside the community and at all creating communities with, of people with like interests and saying, you know, we're going to do this together and we're going to bring Jesus with us and make Jesus part of the conversation. We have this huge, massive vision of a growing church both in numbers and in faith. We all acknowledged that everything we needed to do that was right in this room right here, right now. Why? 
Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he does not give small gifts. That's the mission, church. We do that together. But we don't do it perfectly. <laughs> As Peter knows, the hardest thing I think for a follower of Jesus to do is to forgive. But I think the second hardest thing for a follower of Jesus to do is to receive correction. Because it's hard, right? It's hard to be told you're wrong. You need to change some things. Dr. Henry Cloud tells a story of a man who wanted to get in good physical shape, so he hired a personal trainer, and he met with this personal trainer faithfully, but he didn't work out all that hard. You know, he was just kind of going through the motions. And then after a couple of months, the man says to his personal trainer, you know what, we forgot to take the before picture. You know, so we take the after picture later, so I look good. And the trainer says, oh no, there's still time. <laughs> it's not a personal story, just so you know. It's not, I don't know that from personal experience. <laughs> Correction's hard. And in our text for today, Jesus corrects Peter harshly. He says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Ouch. That's, that's a harsh correction. And Jesus corrects Peter harshly for a couple reasons. One, the sin that Peter is falling into is a big one with huge implications. So Jesus is going to nip it right in the bud. But two, this. Jesus loves Peter. Jesus loves Peter. And he wants to use Peter. Not because of who Peter is, not because Jesus needs Peter. Jesus loves Peter and wants the best for him. And receiving correction well is one of the biggest signs of maturity. And that's true of everyone, but it's especially true of followers of Jesus. Remember a couple months ago, I'm a, I'm Matthew's, I'm Matthew's intern supervisor. And so I, we meet once a week. We just talk about life and ministry and things like that. And a couple months ago, I had to, to kind of correct Matthew. I had to say a few things to him. Say, hey, you're, you're doing this. You really should be doing that. Because I'm the intern supervisor. That's what I have to do. And Matthew listened. And he goes, okay, yeah, we, I can make that change. We can make that work. And I knew right then and there, I'm like, this guy is awesome. This guy is awesome. Because he's got spiritual maturity behind beyond his years. And that was near the beginning of the internship. I thought, we're, we're going to work hard to keep this guy. Not because he can sing and play guitar, although that was part of it, I'll be honest. But right? he's got spiritual wisdom beyond his years. Because he received correction. And that's a hard thing. And so Jesus corrects those he loves. And a couple things, a couple notes on how to receive correction is when someone corrects you to ask this question, does this person want what's best for me? Does this person love me? And if the answer is yes, and then you kind of go, well, I need to receive this correction. 
Because this person loves me and wants the best for me, I need to really listen intently to what this person is saying and, and, and take it to heart as best as I can. If the answer is no, because a lot of times you do receive correction for someone who doesn't want the best for you. They want the best for themselves, right? Your boss will correct you and they want the best for himself or herself oftentimes. And so you've got to receive that correction and go, okay, what part of it is true? What part of this do I need to receive? And what part of this is just kind of this own person's issue? And I need to lay aside and not take it to heart. And that's hard. It's hard to do. That's why it's so good to do church together. Because you can take that correction and take it to someone who loves you. Not someone who's going to agree with you. Don't take it to that person. That's no help at all. Take it to someone who loves you. And says, I was told this recently. Is this true? And the person loves you. They're going to say, no, no, I don't see that at all. Or they might say, well, it's partially true. Or they might say, you know, I've been meaning to talk with you. <laughs> and it's okay. It's all right. It doesn't have to be crushing. Because Jesus Christ loves and forgives you. Because you walk in the authority of his committed love for you. You walk in the authority of his committed promises to you. You walk in the security of his grace and his forgiveness and his life for you. And so if someone says something to you, you can say, wow, that's not true at all, and then bounce it off a couple people and go, yep, it's not true. I don't have to receive that because that's just that person's issue. It's not my issue. Or to say, wow, I need to repent here. This is an issue. I need to do some changes here. And you can do it because it's not crushing. Because Jesus Christ died and rose for you. Jesus did it to Peter. A lot. <laughs> A lot. And Peter goes on to become one of the most incredible, incredible people in history. Not because he started out great. Because he didn't. Not because he was the wisest. Because he wasn't. Not because he was the smartest. Because he really wasn't that. But because he knew he was loved. Because he was able to receive correction. He was able to say, Yes, Lord. I love you. Send me out. Church. Jesus Christ died and rose for you because he loves you. You're his. Nothing's going to change that. He will never change his commitment for you. He will never change his love for you. He will never change his passion for you. And he sends you out to a world that is dying without him. And wouldn't it be great if we could just say, hey, Jesus, go visit this person over there. This person really needs your help. And Jesus says, I already did. I sent you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am not able. I am not equipped. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. You thought you were going alone. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we pray that we might boldly confess you. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one promised in all of Scripture. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are Savior and friend. And Lord, by your grace and through your mercy, we are yours. And Lord, for those here today who are here checking you out, Lord, we thank you so much that, that, you, that we're here together today. We pray, Lord, that all people might know your free grace that we don't have to earn. We don't have to be insecure. We don't have to work hard for it. We don't have to worry. We don't have to wonder. We're just yours, Lord. We get to just rest in you. And Lord, we pray this, that each day we might become more secure in your grace and commitment to us. And that because of that, Lord, we might live boldly in your authority, in your name, falling back in your grace, being restored again and again and again and sent out again again and again to a world that you love. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.